What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, the murder of Emma Till in 1955 is probably the most famous lynching in American history. Now there's a novel about it, a wild comic novel, and it's really good. The author is Percival Everett, and it's called The Trees. How is it possible to write a comic novel about a lynching? John Powers will explain. But first, a question. Are we a nation of lunatics? Katha Pollitt has been thinking about that. Of course, she's a poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for The Nation. She's also written for The New Yorker, The New York Times, and other publications. We reached her at home today in Connecticut. Katha, welcome back. Hi, John. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, your first book of essays was called Reasonable Creatures. I love that title. Tell us about it. Well, Mary Wollstonecraft famously said, I wish to see women neither heroines nor brutes, but reasonable creatures. So she was against, you know, the pedestal and the demonization of women as not quite human. And I thought that was really wonderful. But, you know, John, I'd never use that title now (laughs) because women, sure, there is rational as men. But is that what is that saying? Not much. We're as crazy as ever. And we have less reason by comparison with her 18th century day. We live in paradise. People are more or less educated and literate. Um, Most people are not living in a hot, in a blasted heath Um, (laughs) (laughs) and so on and so forth. And yet these strange delusions sweep over people. What's this I hear about Satan worshiping pedophiles? Well, yeah, what about the Satan worshiping pedophile? <laughs> that's QAnon. Um, and, you know, you might think QAnon, oh, that's just some crazy people out in some state we've never been to. But no, um, according to a PRI poll last May, 15% of Americans believe in QAnon, which is the belief that, quote, the government, media, and financial worlds in the U.S. are controlled by a group of Satan worshiping pedophiles who run a global sex trafficking operation. And John, you know who they mean by Satan worshiping pedophiles. (laughs) Well, I did want to ask specifically, uh, they say the media are controlled by Satan worshiping pedophiles. Does that include America's oldest weekly, The Nation magazine? Uh, Well, you'll have to ask John Goodenplan about that. (laughs) And, and, And what's this about ivermectin as a treatment for COVID-19. What is ivermectin and where do you get it? Well, ivermectin is a, a, an anti-worm medication for farm animals. You get it, at the, you pick it up at the feed store, you don't need a prescription. And somehow people have been persuaded that the vaccines are dangerous and will not help you but this horse medicine is great. Now, your column yeah. says that this information comes from Joe Rogan. I'm not sure I know that name. He's the head of the CDC. 
Dr. Joe Rogan. Yeah, right. No, R Joe Rogan runs an immensely popular podcast. It's it's even more popular than our podcast. Oh, no. I can't believe that. And he and Laura Ingram and Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson have all promoted uh, the idea that the vaccines are harmful. They will not work. They will not protect you. They will do bad things to you. But maybe you should try this horse medicine. And a, a, a large number of people are actually doing this, and a few have died. Um, yes, I, I, I looked this up. The American Association of Poison Control Centers reported that 1,440 cases of ivermectin poisoning have showed up so far this year at poison control uh, centers. In Mississippi, they reported that 70% of, the, of their calls have been about ivermectin recently. But, but I have to say the ivermectin story is different from the Satan-worshipping pedophiles controlling the American government and media. Ivermectin is a kind of miracle drug. The scientists who developed its use for humans won the Nobel Prize in 2015. It cures disfiguring parasitic infections such as elephantiasis and river blindness. In fact, it eradicated river blindness in the Central uh, Africa. Uh, but there's no good evidence that it works on viruses. So the big question is, for you, are parasites different from viruses? I'm afraid they are. They just have no relation to each other. A virus is a virus, and a, a parasite is a little tiny animal that gets inside you and does bad things. So uh, the latest, I should say, is that this particular delusion has real world effects on others than the people who take it, which is that there's now a big shortage. So people, farmers and veterinarians who need ivermectin to treat their animal patients and uh, don't have it. This is terrible. And, and, and you know, it's, it's a similar thing to this other development where there are so many people in ho various hospitals because they have refuse the vaccine that people with the usual kinds of ailments can't get in. Well, the, the other thing that, that Joe Rogan and his comrades say is that there's a campaign by the government to suppress the good news about ivermectin as a cure for COVID. But in fact, I looked this up, there are large rigorous clinical trials underway to test whether there's any chance ivermectin might be effective in, in reducing hospitalizations and deaths from COVID. This effort is led by the National Institutes of Health. It's a study being organized by Duke University. It's not secret, it has not been suppressed. And since we believe in science, we'll respect the findings of this study. But at this point, there's no evidence that ivermectin reduces hospitalizations or deaths from COVID. I did see one of the ivermectin supporting websites listed all of the potential cures for COVID that are being tested. And there's, of course, dozens that have been mentioned by people like Joe Rogan. Ivermectin, it says, is 4% more effective than melatonin. Uh, but does it put you to sleep? <laughs> Okay, so, so, all right, there's a lot of craziness out there, but hasn't America always had a lot of crazy right-wingers? I'm a you know, historian of the 50s and 60s. The John Birch Society said President Eisenhower was, quote, 
a dedicated conscious agent of the communist conspiracy. That was as bad in the 50s as being a Satan-worshipping pedophile is today. Uh, and, and this wasn't just a couple of people. In 1964, mainstream Republicans wanted their candidate, Barry Goldwater, to distance himself from the John Birch Society. And Goldwater told them, quote, every other person in Phoenix is a member of the Birch Society. Ah. I'm talking about the highest caste of men of affairs, close quote. So there's nothing new about crazy people in American politics by the millions. I beg to differ. Because look, the Soviet Union existed. There were spies, there were conspiracies, if you want to call them that. There was an actual, actual country, <laughs> US, the USSR. There is nothing that corresponds in reality to Satan worshiping pedophiles um, of whom Oprah Winfrey and the Pope are too. Um, I didn't know that. <laughs> you know, and there's the idea of, uh, uh, killing and eating children to get um, this thing that they have supposedly called adrenochrome. I don't really know what that is, but probably not worth killing a child to get some. <laughs> but, you know, this is this is totally out of whole cloth. You know, but but some of our friends say that what we are doing now, ridiculing the people who believe the lies of the Trump, the Trumpers, who, of course, are mostly white working class people, uh, this is only going to alienate them further and that instead of ridiculing them, we should treat them with empathy and respect. This does not seem to be your approach. Well, you have to enjoy life a little bit, you know, <laughs> there's that. But, but you know, how do you have an unthreatening, warm, friendly, nice conversation with someone who thinks Oprah Winfrey and, Fran and Pope Francis eat children? You know, I mean, how do you do that? That's interesting. Some people say Tom Hanks is involved as well, but that's hard to believe, don't you think? He's so nice. You know, I mean, I, I, I just don't see how you have that conversation. In your new column uh, at thenation.com, you bring up the argument made by what you call a Marxist friend that what's happening now is a reaction to the decline of the American empire and of white supremacy, whites and Christians, especially men, feel their longtime cultural preeminence and power slipping away. They just can't handle it, especially if super patriotism, racism, and male supremacy were pretty much all they had to begin with. This seems like a very good argument to me. I think it is a good argument uh, with the proviso that there are lots of people who don't fit that profile who believe these things. For example, uh, health conscious yoga moms are are big into QAnon now because, you know, save the children. Right. Um, and black people have very low rates of immunization. And it's because they have a conspiracy theories of their own. But I think, yeah, there is. I think there's a general sense, don't you, that America is, we're kind of declining, we're, things aren't going right. Um, the people that used to be on top, they still want to be on top, but they're not so much anymore, except of course they are. Except um, of course they are. They, are. they feel that they're not. Um, and I think that that has induced this um, a feeling of Jimmy Carter once called malaise. And of course, what's new is not crazy beliefs or irrational ideas, but uh, the internet as a new medium to spread them. 
Yes. And this, I think, is so important. It used to be there could be like a couple of crazy people in one town and a couple of people a few towns over with the same nutty ideas, but they didn't find each other. Now you go on the Internet and all the people who think like you are right there. Um, and in fact, I have read that one of the great appeals of QAnon is that it's a community. It's an online community and people feel useful. They feel they've found, you know, their their network. They've found people who agree with them, whereas the people in their real life think they're insane. I think that's really important. Um, I mean, it's, the Internet has done a lot of good things, too, in terms of bringing people together. It's been very good in some ways for the left, for example, because you might be the only person in your town who believed that uh, capitalism wasn't the best system God ever gave human beings. But it does, I think, bring together all the forms of credulousness, from COVID denialism to health nuttery to new age woo-woo, fundamentalist Christianity, and, and this whole unhealthy fixation on imaginary dangers to children. On the other hand, and of course, it's always my job to present the other hand, <laughs> Biden and the Democrats will pass an unprecedented program of social welfare legislation that will do a lot to really help poor people and working class people and their children, and they will be able to lead healthier and less precarious lives as a result. Joe Biden got more votes in 2020 than any candidate in history by a lot. He had a bigger margin of victory than any candidate in history. A large proportion of Americans have always opposed the repeal of Roe v. Wade and continue to do so. A large majority of Americans favor government mask mandates as a way to fight COVID. So there's a lot of evidence that the forces of rationality and decency are in the big majority in America. That's true, but it doesn't take a, a, a well-organized and passionate minority, like for example, the NRA can defeat all the people who think guns should be, should have minimal, some kind of minimal regulation. So yeah, you're right. Not everybody is crazy. Um, <laughs> and, so let that bring you whatever comfort it can. Katha Pollitt, Read her at thenation.com. Thank you, Katha. This was great. I hope you feel better about things tomorrow. Well, you're very comforting. <laughs> Thanks for having me on the show. The murder of Emma Till in Mississippi in 1955 is probably the most famous lynching in American history. Now there's a novel about it, sort of. It's a wild comic novel. The author is Percival Everett. It's called The Trees, and it's really good. How is it possible to write a comic novel about a lynching? For comment, we turn to John Powers. He's critic at large on NPR's Fresh Air with Terry Gross, where he has about 3 million listeners. We reached him today at home in Pasadena. Hi, John. Hello, John. Well, the story of Emma Till is known to millions of students who watched episode one of the documentary Eyes on the Prize. It's been shown in classrooms everywhere for a couple of decades now, including mine at UC Irvine. The story as told there starts at the Tallahatchie River in a small town with the unlikely name of Money, Mississippi. 
Here, the narrator Julian Bond says, the body of Emma Till was found way down in the waters. Two local men were arrested and charged with the murder. They were white. Emma Till, of course, was black. He was from Chicago. He had come to money to visit his relatives. The white woman who worked in a store said he had grabbed her and was menacing, but in 2017, she told historian Timothy Tyson that was not true. The body was shipped home back north to Chicago, where the boy's mother, Mamie Till Bradley, insisted on an open casket funeral. Jet magazine showed Till's corpse, beaten, mutilated, shot through the head. A generation of black people would remember the horror of that photo. In The New Yorker recently, Julian Lucas explained the deeper significance of that photo in Jet magazine. Photos of the lynch bodies of black men and of the white crowds who watched were distributed widely on postcards uh, throughout the South. These images functioned as weapons of white supremacist terror. But Mamie Till's decision to hold an open casket viewing of her maimed son galvanized millions against segregation and lynching. She reappropriated her son's death from his killers who had intended it as an act of intimidation. And she turned that image into an act of defiance, inviting press photographers and crowds of strangers to, in her words, let the world see what they did to my boy. Meanwhile, back in Money, Mississippi, Roy Bryant, husband of the woman in the store, and, and J.W. Milam, her brother-in-law, were arrested for the murder of Emma Till. At their trial, it took an all-white jury one hour to find the men not guilty. A couple months later, Roy Bryant and J.W. Milam told their story of how they had murdered Emma Till to a reporter named William Bradford Huey. He paid them $4,000 for their story, which appeared in Look magazine. That was one of more than 500 documented lynchings in Mississippi alone. And now Percival Everett has made that story the basis of a wild comic novel. How does he make it funny? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's not a natural thing to make funny, but I think as often happens in Everett's case, what he didn't want to do was to make it too earnest or protest novelly. It's, it's, it's like a comic police story in a way. You, it, it's set in, the, in present, it's set in the present, and what happens is there's a crime. Two white guys, or, or actually one guy at first, is killed, his throat is slit, he's castrated, and his testicles are in the hand of a black body that somehow just happens to be there. And it turns out that the first two white victims are the sons of the two men who murdered Emmett Till. So maybe this is some kind of revenge killing. Now, how does that make it funny? On the face of it, it doesn't sound like it's funny. Yet from the opening lines, He's making fun of the town of Money, Mississippi, and making fun of the people who are killed, who are the stereotypical or beyond stereotypical kind of, quote, redneck, unquote, people. That, in fact, the whole thing is portrayed as a kind of comic, dark comic farce about the murder of people. And why would you do this? I think that his sense was that everybody has been feels beaten by stories of lynching and, and, and black people being murdered. So it almost doesn't register as much as it might. I think what he's trying to do is use comedy in telling this story to somehow knock us out of our received sense of how you would look at this 
And one way you make it funny is that you treat the white people with the kind of derisive contempt that black people were often portrayed in, in Hollywood movies. You know, so they're kind of like white, it, it, I, I don't like the term white trash, but, it, but in this case, it kind of fits white trash minstrelsy, if you can see it. The white, the white people are like the worst case comical scenario of those people. And therefore, to make it comical, you can, they're slightly dehumanized in that way, um, which, which makes it funny. Now, at first might seem like a police procedural. You have the the small town sheriff with his dim sidekick trying to solve it. And then you have two members of the Mississippi Bureau of Investigation, both black, who are quite jocular and bicker like in in a a cop buddy movie as as they're looking into the case. And then you have a a kind of disaffected FBI agent who became an FBI agent because she knew how much... her, her progressive parents would hate it. And she gets involved in it. And what happens is that it's, it's, it is kind of a farce or a, a, a buffoonish version of a serious thing. And it does have the effect, weirdly enough, of, make you, of making you think about things in a slightly different way. And there's one other notable white character, the woman who accused Emmett Till yes. is now a very elderly granny. She is filled with regret and remorse. You no, know, she is filled with regret and remorse. She's known she's done all this. To, and in fact, she's not murdered. There's a strange forgiveness. I mean, she, she does die, but, but it, there is a strange forgiveness to her in the sense that she's not brutally murdered because she owned up to it and felt shame and horror for the past. So she doesn't actually have to be punished in quite the same way because she's internally punishing herself. This is actually the true part of this otherwise yes. wildly imaginative novel. Yes. The, the accuser did, close to her death, admit that she had lied and yes. we assume did so remorsefully and apologetically. Yes, no, I think so. so you know, so so, and and the thing about it is that there are so many farcical and kind of cop story elements to it. Yet, I mean, I remember there's a famous George Bernard Shaw line about, or not, it's not a famous, a not very famous George Bernard Shaw line, where he says that the privilege of joking in public should only be reserved to very serious people, oh. and and you know, it's a, a classic Shaw paradox. But in fact. This is a serious book. And one of the ways you know it's a serious book is you're reading them, they're filled with jokes and, you know, and, 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 and clever lines. You're like, I think one of them, dead is the new black, you know, which is, you know, it just, you know, it, it's filled with great lines, great jokes, funny dialogue, yet occupying almost the dead center of the novel is something that comes up where a researcher comes down from the north and meets up with a woman named Mama Z who's been keeping records of all the lynching, bl- murdered black people. And in the middle of this novel, suddenly you just get page after page just of names. And these are all people who actually were murdered. The, the, you know, and the center of the book is the list of all of these names, names you don't know, but just kind of reminding you in the center of all this, this is something that is widespread, has been going on an incredibly long time. And that this is what the book is about. It's, it's about these people and all the stuff spinning wildly around it is an attempt to make us notice this. And I want to go back to the testicles in the hand of the dead black man who might be Emma Till. Of course, 
This was something that the white lynchers often did to black yes. men, often accused of having sex or so-called yeah. raping uh, white women. Here, the black killer apparently has castrated his white victims, kind of turning the tables on yeah. a familiar story. Yes, it is. You know, it's it's a symbolic reversal, and and and, a, and a, so essentially, what what happens through the book is wherever there are cases where someone has has been has been lynched or 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 race killed in this book, you do find the kind of symbolic reenactment with the white body and the black body because the, the and they're bound together. And of course, it's a huge thing because there are so many cases. And in fact, you know, there are even some Chinese people along the way. And it's not just Mississippi. You know, in your home state of Minnesota, I think there is, you know, there, there, there is an example, isn't there? In the 1924, there was a lynching in Duluth, Minnesota of yeah. three black men. And this appears very briefly, but very, very obviously in Percival Everett's book. It's not just in Mississippi that yes. black men were lynched for accu on accusations made by white women. It was even in Minnesota and in Orange County, California, oh, yeah. the lynching victims are Asians. Yeah. Now, what's, what's interesting in it is that, as I mentioned earlier, the book has the shape of some sort of thing where you're going to solve the crime. Now, gradually, of course, the cops realize the crime is so vast. And then I can't say what happens, but 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 it even changes it changes it to an, an even spookier turn by the end, and and, and a turn of vengeance. It must be it, it must be said, or or at least ju justice, which probably is attached to vengeance in this particular case. And the book, in some kind of ways, almost explodes. The crime is so vast that you can't solve it as a crime. You can't contain it all within the book. That there's no resolution that you can possibly propose to it in this book. There's no crime solving. There's no hero that can do it. And, you know, and, and I think that's, you know, once again, that's a, a, using the method of fiction to suggest the vastness of this, while at the same time, I think, knowing that readers want to be entertained. The kind of pop dimension of this book, which makes it so pleasurable, is that it's giving you this horrible stuff, and yet at the same time, you don't feel ground down or beaten down. James Baldwin wrote about the problem with, with a certain kind of protest novel is that it's telling you something that you know and then making you feel awful about it and yet nothing comes of it. Yeah. Everett's whole career is something different to that. We live in a time when the representation of oppression the, and the representation of the black body is a highly controversial, contested and troubled issue. Percival Everett is a brave man to step into these yes. waters. How does he do it? I remember once interviewing a, a dissident Polish director and I said, um, your book, your films are quite funny. And he said, yes, I smile through clenched teeth. And I think when, as you read this book, which is very funny, the rage that comes through is so powerful. And this is the way that he channels his rage in the way that you know someone like Ishmael Reed might, might challenge his rage. This is how he focuses, focuses it. Now, the representation of the black body here in this particular case, it shifts off to the white body. The black body is there, but it's now having done to it what the black body had done to it. It's shocking to us to read it. And it's especially shocking to the white people in the novel. For them, this is, this is like something out of this world that, that you would actually just be killed for seemingly no reason. 
have your body mutilated and your testicles cut off. In, in some cases, you haven't done anything. You've been the son of somebody who did something. But that's sufficient. And of course, in the case of so many lynchings, that was what was sufficient. Somebody decided that's sufficient and this happens to you. And the shock and horror of the white people at, at, at this going on in the novel is, is, is quite powerful. We're two white guys here talking about this. I think, think, we, okay. I think that's pretty yeah. clear. Yes, and it's pretty clear. I'm not giving it away. You know, I mean, this isn't a spoiler. Um, but, you know, I've been a writer for a long time. And, and part of, I think, white privilege as a writer is that you don't ever have to worry about your whiteness. It is just yes. there. So you never have to make it a theme. My book isn't about being white. It's about being human. Whereas for so many African-American and, and, and probably and Asian and Latino writers, you know, you are stuck with people expect you to or want you to, to deal with being black. And how does Percival Everett deal with this expectation among readers? Percival Everett has, from the very beginning, I think, taken on the freedom that a white writer would automatically assume which is he wants to write about what he wants to write about in the way that he wants to write about it. And what that means is he's, he writes books about brilliant babies and he writes books about university professors. He writes linguistically complex things. He writes about detectives who are black, but he never plays up the fact they're black. He inhabits their blackness, but it, it's not the point of the book. It's just there in the book. In this particular case, I think the Trump years drove him slightly insane. I, don't, I mean, I don't know him at all. I think that somehow, I mean, Trump who appears in the novel, but the, the, the Trump years drove him insane enough that he wrote in some ways his most overt novel about this. But in fact, his way has always been cool and funny. He, he channels anger into wit. And I think that, that's what happens in this particular case. I mean, what I think is important about him is that he's been able to escape in a way that lots that lots of lots of African American writers have, I think, have felt trapped. Even in his personal life, he likes hunting and fishing and, and horseback riding. That doesn't sound like an African American writer. He has basically taken the freedom that a white guy like me actually just got for. I, it didn't take. It didn't cost me anything to get it. I got it for free. He's actually, I think, claimed it for himself. And so I think that's how he's gotten so daring in this particular book, you know, in the same way as he was daring in his book Erasure, where he made fun of some of the books that Oprah was putting on her TV show, books like Precious, that were kind of filled with not very well-written stories of, of Black misery, ignorance, and crime. We should say one other thing about Percival Everett. He is phenomenally productive and active as a writer. He's written 22 other novels and a total of something like 44 books. He basically writes one of these a year. But one last thing, why is this book called The Trees? Okay, well, I think there, there are at least three reasons why it's called The Trees. Reason one is trees are what lynched people are hung from. So that's just starting at the most literal level, it's about, about lynching. The second one is it's about, I think, family trees you know, in the sense that, you know, that you're killing the, the branches of the people who actually did the initial killing of Emmett Till. And then the third, I think, is a play on the idea of the forest and the trees. I think we all know the forest of lynching, and somehow it seems so vast to us and indistinguishable. And yet, I think for him, the trees are like you start with the Emmett Till case, 
other people who were killed figure, and then the list of names in the middle, those are trees. They actually have names. They have identities. They listed. The woman, Mama Z, who's keeping the list of all of them, is keeping those trees alive because it's so easy to blur it all. Oh, yes, the tragic history of lynching in America. But in each case, it's somebody whose body has been destroyed and probably humiliated while being destroyed and then deliberately desecrated afterwards. It is a forest trees, I mean, and the trees and family trees, which is a very Percival Everett thing to do. John Powers, the novel is The Trees. The author is Percival Everett. John, thanks for talking with us today. Okay, my pleasure. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. Music